You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fourth Black Architecture Talk of the M Pavilion season. Um, tonight, we're talking about collaboration, co-design, and consultation um, in many, many forms, and what that actually means in the context of the built environment. But first, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that we gather on today, and pay my respects to the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and um, also to the ancestors and peoples and descendants of any people that may be here today. I acknowledge your ancestors and elders as well. Um, I'm actually not facilitating tonight, for anyone who's been to one of these talks before and I'm constantly facilitating, I'm handing over to Anne-Marie, so take it away. Great, thanks Sarah. Um, on behalf of um, uh, all of us here today at the panel, I'd also like to acknowledge um, the Wurundjeri, Bunurong and Bunurong people of this land as traditional owners of where we're all meeting on tonight and like to pay our respects to the elders past and present and also to any other Aboriginal people that are here in attendance with us tonight. Um, thank you for all coming tonight. It's a great turnout. Um, we're just going to start. So tonight's about talking really about uh, having a, a panel discussion about co-design, collaboration and consultation. We'll, just, we'll get straight into it. And I'd just like to start off by um, having the panel just give a short, um, sort of short bio about themselves, talk a little bit about themselves. I'll um, just starting. So my name's Anne-Marie Pisani. I'm a... Um, landscape architect and a senior associate at Aspect Studios, where I'm uh, really sort of leading, I think, uh, the indigenous engagement um, and appropriate engagement with community um, and connection to country strategy for the, whole, for, for the National Aspect Studio. Um, I've been in practice for 25 years uh, and since then we've also had some children, um, but really my main focus has been environmental um, and community focused. And even when I was studying at university, it was very much about engaging with traditional owners. So every, uh, every office, every government area that I've worked in, um, I've worked both in government and public and private off, um, studios, I've made sure that I'm trying to engage with traditional owners in all the projects. So it's been, it's been a long, great um, and really interesting and um, educational journey for me as well. Um, and um, I think just the, the other thing as well, um, ALA Victoria, we've just developed a national uh, RAP, Reconciliation Action Plan, uh, two years ago. It was launched in mid-2018, uh, and we're sort of still working through that, which is fantastic. It's still a main focus of, um, on the agenda for, um, for ALA, who is Australian Institute of Landscape Architects. In Victoria, here we have a Connection to Country Committee that is heavily involved and um, has some great discussions and events um, as we can organise them, and it's great to see a lot of, actually, other members here tonight. Um, and I'm also, together with Sarah, um, a member of the um, OVGA uh, as a design panel member, um, focusing on Indigenous engagement and appropriate engagement with communities. Let's pass it over to... I might just do a very quick... Um, the panel members are, just before they introduce themselves, Jill Orr Young, um, Paul Payton, Tom Day, Adam Nitschke, and Sarah Lynn Reeves. Pass it over to you, Jill. Okay, so um, Jill Or Young, I'm a registered landscape architect. Um, I've been working in landscape architecture for longer than I, than I can say, um, since 1981, actually. So, 
Um, I've seen a lot of development in terms of um, engagement of um, Aboriginal communities in projects. Um, and um, I'd just say that I'm working in private practice currently, um, almost retired, and um, I have come from government projects as well, so, um, or government agencies, so, um, yeah, it's been a long haul. <laughs> That'll do. Uh, Nurinj, Womaninji, uh, Nectal Makta, Paul Payton, uh, Naju Gunnai, Naju Manero. Uh, Nanju Tanganai, Warangi, uh, Bumurang, Banarong, Ganai, uh, and Ganitba, uh, Warangi, uh, uh, Ganai. Uh, my name's Paul Payton. I'm a um, Ganai Monero man from Gippsland, in East Gippsland, and uh, I'm here to um, speak about my experience as a, as a traditional owner of, um, of those countries and uh, talk about my experience in, in um, working with communities. Um, I've done a, a few things in my life. I started out by uh, studying landscape architecture, but uh, took a different direction um, halfway through. And um, but so I have a sort of a, a good appreciation and a strong understanding of, 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 the, uh, of the profession. Um, and then I moved um, from that into uh, Aboriginal languages and spent uh, 14 years uh, uh, running the Aboriginal Language Corporation in Victoria, supporting communities in the revival of Aboriginal languages and uh, worked across the state as well as uh, nationally on um, uh, community uh, capacity building, uh, language development and um, advocating for uh, change in government and policy and education systems to teach Aboriginal languages in schools. Um, I could go on. Um, from there, I've spent uh, two and a half years at the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning as the um, Partnerships and Engagement Manager, so working uh, with the department on uh, engaging with communities across the state uh, in implementation of uh, language, um, not language, um, uh, departmental policies, um, developing the, uh, the department's engagement framework uh, and uh, really uh, building capacity within the, uh, within the department to support um, their engagement with communities and ensure that those, uh, those relationships and those partnerships remained uh, strong into the future. And, uh, and now I've uh, just moved uh, about 10 months ago over to the uh, Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. So I'm the CEO of, of the Federation uh, starting in April last year. And uh, <coughs> we, uh, we're a statewide advocacy body that uh, advocates for the rights uh, and interests of traditional owners in, um, in many areas uh, of, of, um, of policy uh, and uh, in the areas of um, legislation to, to seek change for traditional owners, um, ensuring that traditional owner rights are reflected in um, the management of land, uh, in the, um, the management of uh, um, the, the native foods and botanicals industry, um, and really identifying how traditional owners can uh, have, a, have a, their rightful place in um, 
in areas such as um, the ec economic development, renewable energy, um, and uh, and many other areas that uh, they're identified by traditional owners, such as um, the, the the health of country, the health of um, the community, uh, ensuring that uh, traditional owner voices are heard. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a, an area that um, is long overdue, and traditional owners are uh, really coming to the forefront and letting their voices be heard, um, and uh, letting their their um, their their interests um, be known. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I look forward to this evening's conversation, uh, working with communities um, and, and talking about uh, co-design and collaboration and, um, and uh, consultation. So I'll pass it over to Tom, Brother Tom. Thank you. Nanawawari apa nalanyunga, Tom Day apa, Gunujmara apa, Yora Yora apa, Wamba Wamba Mara. So hello, I'm Tom Day. I'm a Wamba Wamba, Yorta Yorta and Gundijmara man. Um, I'm currently a graphic design slash artist. Um, I've worked with Anne-Marie um, within the landscape architecture field with a few other um, architecture firms across Melbourne. Uh, I've also worked with Paul uh, when he was at the Department of Environment, Water, Land and Planning, uh, redesigning the branding for the Aboriginal unit across the state of Victoria. Uh, my previous experience, I come from a background of native title and cultural heritage. Uh, so I come from Lake Kondo, if, if people know that place, Gundijmara country. Uh, I was a former CEO and chairman of that group, which is a native title registered body corporate in Australia. Um, I took on that role before I was 30. I uh, did that for a number of years. Um, sort of worked around engagement, uh, joint management projects within Parks Victoria, uh, and then left that field to pursue arts, um, which is my passion, and now I do that full time. So also brought in on different projects across the state around consultation and engagement, uh, where Aboriginal philosophy, culture, dreaming, uh, and design can be incorporated within the architectural field. Uh, not in terms of coming in after the project to just put pretty pictures on a wall, but, but trying to incorporate our philosophies across that design sector. Uh, currently based in Shepparton, uh, but as I said, um, definitely have a keen interest in it, in it regardless. Um, but I think my background across the fields of native title um, and cultural heritage and engagement, community engagement, um, on a national state and spent time internationally working with First Nations group across North America, Canada and New Mexico um, has sort of influenced the way I approach things currently. So as Paul said, I'm definitely interested um, in tonight's panel discussion to see what um, the other panellists have to say and, and um, sort of provide anything I can within the context of engagement across communities. So thank you. Hi, folks. Um, my name is Adam Nitschke. I'm a, I'm a landscape architect as well. Uh, I, I live and work in, in Woodend, and I, I work for Parks Victoria as the manager of regional operations and um, for northern regions. So northern regions basically a, a bit of a rectangle from King Lake up to Yarrawonga, up to the um, past Mildura to the border of South Australia, down underneath... Um, uh, Wiperfeld National Park and, and sort of back. So it's a big chunk of Victoria. 
Uh, I manage a team of about 30, and we, we look at delivery of big conservation, landscape-scale conservation programs, and, and some visitor experience and asset upgrade programs as well. Uh, before that, I, I managed a team in Melbourne uh, of landscape architects and did a lot of, uh, sort of uh, site planning and master planning for right across the, uh, Victoria. So that's me. I, I think Northern Victoria has been a really interesting place to work for me. There's a lot of um, traditional owner groups with uh, recognition and settlement agreements and uh, parks under joint management. So day to day, the work I'm doing is collaborating with traditional owners. So interesting to talk about that today. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Lynn Rees. I'm a Palawa woman descending from the Plankamarine and Trollway people of northeast Tasmania and also descending from convicts of the Cambridgeshire region in England. Um, I work at Jackson Clements Burroughs Architects and also teach at Monash University and sit on the First Nations Advisory Working Group and a number of other boards advocating wherever possible for change in our field to better the lives of both Indigenous peoples but also country, acknowledging that not every project can undergo engagement but every project can still have a con positive contribution to place um, and to understanding of country. So um, I'm really keen to have this conversation. I'm really glad to not be facilitating. Um, and I think it's important that we have this conversation because it's... Um, these terms are thrown around quite a lot and they, they sort of have different meanings and, and they mean different things to different people and they're sometimes dirty words and sometimes not. And so I'm really keen for us to sort of hash that out. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, panel. Um, and just before we get into the conversation, I just want to just by start, start saying um, when we refer to the words country, so just a bit of a definition. So when we refer to the words country, we don't just mean landscape. We don't just mean a suburb. Um, and it means something different to everybody. Um, and we've sort of been having that discussion here, actually, even between the six of us here on the panel, we all have a slightly different interpretation of what country is and what it means to us. Um, but um, I think in one way, if I just broadly um, say where it is that um, I think we're sort of seeing country as, or in particular um, for myself, is country is not just a landscape, it's about relationships of people, the, the relationships they have with each other, the relationships they have with, with the land, um, knowledge, their knowledge of their place, um, the connection they have with that place and the custodianship as well. Um, now, I know it all might mean something different to everyone, but I think we're just tr trying to clarify that it is that connection with country that we were talking about. Um, and in regards to co-design, collaboration and, and consultation, we're not sort of really here to, to delve into too much about what each of those are and, and what um, the definitions are. Just broadly, when we're talking here tonight, we're referring to co-design. We're actually referring it to meaning more as it's a design, it's one, per, one person or one party has more of an input into that design and then there is an additional, the second party, be it a client or another designer, has input or, feed, or feedback into it, but it's certainly got one person has more of a say in that design area. Um, whereas collaboration, when we're talking about that tonight, it's an equal say, it's an equal part by both parties, um, or it could be more than two parties together, um, and it's equal throughout the whole process. And in regards to consultation, that's um, the way that we're sort of referring to it really is it's, it's more um, seeking, I think it's more about seeking feedback or input 
into it. Um, there's perhaps some thought, some process has already been undertaken and it's um, then coming and involving another person. So it's coming again more from one direction there. Um, and I think we'll sort of be talking about different projects. The way we're going to run tonight is really, um, we're just going to be sort of talking about projects. We know people are really interested in, in hearing experiences on projects that people have worked on and we'll talk and be talking about some of those um, successes and some lessons that we've learned that maybe haven't worked so well as well um, and we'll just sort of be uh, moving across. So we could be talking about co-design sometimes, um, consultation, uh, collaboration and then we'll go back but we'll make sure quite clearly which area we're talking about at that time so we won't just be covering one full area at a time. I'm happy just to sort of start it off. I guess. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, talking about um, co-design in particular, um, starting off with a project I've just recently been working on. And if it, so um, there was some original design work um, that I'd sort of started to think about more design principles about a project, just starting to put some principles together, to, ready to have a conversation with um, traditional owners about that project to start talking about understanding um, where they'd like to have their involvement, um, what's their input, how much are they, what's their level of interest in the project and how much would they like to be involved in it. And it's all about building relationships early on, so making sure it's having those conversations. And there was, uh, there was strong interest in that project um, and really just sort of starting off by bringing some information into the project and then quite quickly through discussions, learning that um, really I had to, I needed to go away and do a bit more research in some areas or some areas that they thought were really of interest but um, needed to be correctly, um, even for my level of understanding to come into that, make sure I have the right level of understanding. So I needed to go away and work through that and come back. And even though at the beginning it was probably started off being a bit of a, a co-design, it really developed quite quickly into more of a collaborative process because the interest was there by a community. Um, the, the process that I was making sure that we're engaging and making sure it's a, um, it was a um, place that was um, inviting and it was the right place for community to be able to speak and to speak freely, we just had the right approach that um, it ended up being a very collaborative design process that there was a lot of input there um, and uh, so much so that actually um, when a um, when we presented something to, to council, council were a little bit um, pushing back on the design that we had worked through together and um, traditional owners were very strong in standing together with with, um, with ourselves on the design and saying no this is this is where it needs to be this is this is the right way so it's sort of you know, there's ways that processes can go from co-design through to developing it into a, a collaborative type process. So it doesn't always have to be one process going through. Anne-Marie, do you, do you think that different groups or, you know, traditional owner groups can play a different card in the process of design, working alongside a landscape architect or a designer? Or, or go places or take projects places that maybe the designer wouldn't be able to go to alone, if that makes sense? Mm. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's, there's a level... I mean, it's obviously the traditional owner's understanding and um, their interest, um, but also um, I think, you know, it's, it's the, the process. And I think 
it can go in different ways, but I think the foundation of that is building on that building of that relationship between traditional owners and yourself as a designer, working through with them, because if you can build a strong relationship, strong trusting relationship, then I think it can actually go in different ways. You know, depends if have they got um, capacity in their in with the group. You know, have they got um, enough time to spend on this project? Is it of interest to them? So it depends which way they want to take that. Um, yeah, because I, I, I'm thinking from my experience at Parks Vic, where we often talk about partnership and, and working in partnership um, rather than collaboration, because what we do together is is sort of beyond any one project. It's usually a whole series of projects that'll be that'll be coming up and passing and going, and and so yeah, it is about building building that relationship and the rapport and a sense of trust and understanding of what each other's trying to achieve and, uh, and then utilising that to, to make the project at its best. And, and I suppose what I was getting at is this idea that, you know, Parks Vic's a bureaucracy and we can do certain things and we can push things, you know, so far, but often traditional owners can actually go, oh, you know, well, that's not good enough, we want to go here and, and take it that whole step further and, and really help lead us as government to, to sort of stretch us, I guess, a bit further? I know from personal experience, um, in terms, I used to work for Parks Victoria in the past, um, and the way landscape management was approached was based on a park-by-park -park need basis on the demands of that park. Um, from a Gundijmara perspective, we sort of, it was coming from the point of view that, well, we want a whole of country approach we don't see a park just ending here and then what happens in there is not going to affect what's outside of a bureaucratic border. Um, so we sort of bucked the trend and, and worked tirelessly with Parks Victoria at the, at the head level and at a ministerial level as well to, to sort of develop the first landscape across country um, approach which took in national parks, state reserves, um, even marine parks which we had at the time. Um, and even the, you know, the initial idea was to get a planner just uh, to sort of come in and, and run the, the same process again. Uh, I was the CEO at the time at Gundage Mearing and, and we refused that. We said th this needs a criteria of legitimacy. Um, from a traditional owner point of view, we do have joint management across these parks. Uh, we need it to, to fit a cultural match. Uh, we, not, we aren't the Gundage Mara of 200 years ago, or we're the Gundage Mara of, of now. Um, and we need to be on equal footing. So we developed an extensive um, sort of approach to creating a position that would sit with the planner, um, work with the expertise of a planner that would be a skills transfer to someone within our own community because we manage properties aside from state reserves and parks, um, and then sort of work collaboratively side by side to be seen together publicly as well. Um, the general public knew that, yeah, we're joint managers, but we're two separate entities. Well, we're not really. We're managing a state asset. Um, and we as Gundage Mara people are looking beyond uh, just sitting in the Indigenous box and being a footnote to another management plan. Um, so really being strategic in thinking, well, well, we have the ear of some places where parks cannot get but then they can get the ear of places that we're trying to get. So let's create, instead of a partnership, um, a binding document that binds us together 
um, in perpetuity, basically. So, yeah, it just it just makes me think um, about the um, part of the work that we're doing is um, developing. I mentioned at the moment strategies and around um, fire strategies and so forth, and. Um, one that just got uh, signed off last week is the uh, cultural landscape strategy and that's been a, um, a partnership between traditional owners, uh, Parks Victoria and DELP to uh, really uh, recognise the different ways of managing country uh, and the different knowledge systems and the different approaches to be able to um, develop a shared language around um, how all those different knowledge systems and approaches can be um, brought together so that there is that partnership um, and there's a partnership in perpetuity that lasts uh, and, and deals with the, the future management of, of countries. So um, I think, you know, the, uh, the arrangements that are set up in, there, in that partnership to actually establish that strategy is, um, is something that we move, uh, we, we establish um, time and time again which is a, a, a co-governance group, and it's, it's, it sounds a bit sort of government-like and, and things like that, but it, it's, and it really talks to that, that partnership um, where there is decision-making, there's, there's equal decision-making in this co-governance group. So the, uh, the groups will, will um, from, from the very outset, will be making decisions together, and that's what true partnership is. And, you know, projects will come and go, um, but the, the, the relationship and the, the partnership is maintained. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the sort of expectation that, is, that traditional owners have, that um, if we're going to work together, then we're going to set up structures that, uh, that uh, reflect um, those aspirations and particularly around, around decision-making, and that's something that really will come out in this conversation or will, needs to be part of this conversation quite strongly, and that's... Collaboration, partnership, decision making. Um, it's not just a one sided affair. So, yeah. Yes, it's interesting to see that development at Parks Victoria um, because when I left there, there was no talk of any kind of consultation, let alone Indigenous consultation. So, it's developed from a really low base. And, um, you know, I think um, we've talked about consultation as being the lesser of the three um, co-design, collaboration, consultation. It's still the term that's most used by local government when they want to engage landscape architects who may then recommend um, an Indigenous advisor. But um, I've been in the position, and I think about it as a fly-in, fly-out kind of a a term, you know, it doesn't need any kind of um, relationship at all, it's just you do the project and then you're out of there, so, um, but I think as Anne-Marie said, they can, the three terms can overlap and develop um, from one to the other, perhaps in both directions. Um, so interestingly, I've been in a position where I was a consultant to an Aboriginal um, client, which was in those days Aboriginal Affairs Victoria, now Aboriginal Victoria. And uh, they have a site on the, on the Maribyrnong River at Keelor, and it was the site where they did extensive archaeological excavations, and it was given back to the Wurundjeri people. So they wanted a management plan to be able to um, start to rehabilitate the site 
and they'd done a number of studies on different aspects. So I was called in to coordinate the whole thing for um, the person that ran it was, um, there was an archaeologist in partnership with um, a Wurundjeri, um, she would have been a field officer, and she was able to bring in a whole group of Wurundjeri elders to discuss how we were going to go about this. And they were well looked after, you know, and it wasn't just a, a casual thing, it was very planned, you know, they were given comfortable area to consult with us. Um, there was food and drink provided, which is not often thought of. Um, and they came up with a statement of significance, which was a really interesting statement of significance, totally different from the scientific one that had been formulated. And they were able to make decisions amongst themselves about what would happen to the cranium that had been found on site and was then stored at Museum Victoria. Um, they disagreed amongst themselves about whether the D, um, DNA should be taken from it. Um, and eventually the cranium was reburied on the site. Um, and I understand many years later, the site now has uh, a Wurundjeri name and has had some fire management on it. So I think these projects can be really long projects, you know, like 20 years is, is nothing. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that was an experience of myself as a consultant to an Aboriginal client. I think as well, um, you know, I think what, what we've all sort of been talking about is about um, consultation and partnership and, you know, when does the difference, you know, the partnership I think is more at the strategic sort of upper level, whereas consultation, a lot, um, any of those, any of you here today that are in the design field may often undertake consultation in your projects, but in one way is a consultation, is it just one project length? Maybe if you work with the same traditional owners or the same group, you might, you know, you might go to a second one, but the partnership really is is a long-term, really, um, prospect of, of building a partnership and continuing that project. And we are talking long-term. It's not just one project or, or two where that could go. It's a, it's a good point. I, I think um, like at Parks Vic, we're really fortunate we have that sort of long-term approach. And we, we've got a, a managing country together framework, which is a plan about how we're going to work with traditional owners right across the Parks Estate. Uh, I had the, uh, I worked for my boss for a week during the year and um, it was really obvious to me at, at a sort of like a regional director level, his day-to-day -day was working with traditional owners. So I think by uh, midday on the Monday on my day I was acting, on my week I was acting, uh, I'd already spoken to Monica Morgan from Yorta Yorta and I'd spoken to Rodney Carter from Jajarung because issues had popped up and we have to work through that collaboratively together. So it, for me that was a real eye-opener and made me realise that the context we're working in now is, is true partnering in all decision-making and what's going on. Um, there's an example project that I'd like to talk about which is, um, so there's a program that the government's funded called um, Victoria's Great Outdoors, so it's basically an investment in camping and, and, and sort of outdoor infrastructure. And one of the projects under that is the $2 million project for Bendigo, and it, it was funded through the department to Parks Vic. But when we looked at it, it sat within the Jar Jar Rung, um, recognition and settlement agreement footprint, and 
we thought, well, why, why are we managing this? It's a joint managed park. So we actually we wrote to Jar Jar Warung and, and, and said, well, how would you like to run it? Because really, you know, maybe you're a better place to run this than we are. And it ended up that that's the way we felt it was better delivered. So Jar Jar Warung are now, now leading that project and, and Parks Vic are partnering with Jar Jar Warung. So it's almost like a kind of nice role reversal. And it, it plays on that idea I mentioned earlier about Jar Jar Rung being able to lead that project the way they want and take it in a slightly different direction that's not a standard sort of government um, plotted sort of path of how you deliver a project as well. So, um, yeah, it's a really nice example project. Early days, but um, hopefully within a year or two we'll have something to land on the ground. It's a, it's a cultural camping village in uh, Bendigo Regional Park, so be able to go there and, and stay in a hosted campground with Jajarung people, so it'll be fun. I think it's um, interesting, you're all, uh, I completely understand the con you're talking about partnerships and long-term relationships, but in the context of architecture, we live project to project and we don't have those long-term partnerships at a strategic level, we have them at a personal level, uh, when we've been working with traditional owner groups from one project to the next, especially when we're sort of working in the context of Melbourne, um, you develop that relationship, but that sort of um, decision-making at a high level doesn't exist, and I would love to see that. I would love to see the developers and um, council, local councils actually partnering with traditional owners to talk about strategic development and what is important so that we can make sure at a sort of uh, a city scale or a suburban scale that these things are actually embedded and considered in the policies, you know. It could be anything from making sure that every plant that we replant because it's died is you know, native to that area the, from the ecological vegetation class of that site, or it could be, um, you know, we have to refer to Melbourne Water whenever we're doing a project near the river, so why aren't traditional owners a referral body that exists within? So that that, that system is there and it's a, um, it can then trickle down because at the moment the reality is we don't have any obligation to undertake any form of engagement and it's only really practices who seriously advocate for it and um, then undertake that engagement that um, really are, are doing anything um, to make sure that that's something that's considered. And often that's too late. So by the time something gets to our desk and it's gone through a full, full procurement pro process, the government structure is set up and we're sitting here going, well, this project should have traditional owner engagement. It's incredibly significant. Um, or even if it's not on paper, it doesn't look significant. It would have significance to the community. Why isn't this happening? And we'll advocate for it and sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't, but it just seems like they're that we could be so much more strategic about this and have so much better outcomes. And, you know, I think I said before, not every project can have an engagement process. Sometimes you're designing something that doesn't have the funds to do that or doesn't have that um, process in mind, but at least if there was a strategic level, there could be targets or objectives or protocols set um, at, a, at a planning level that we as architects have to meet so that even if we're, it's kind of the carrot and the stick, it's more the stick approach than the carrot approach, but um, at least that's set in stone and obviously can go through um, revision when that happens with traditional owners to make sure that's embedded in the process, but at least that way um, we're considering things at scale. We just don't have that in architecture and I think that's something that we need. It's really, it's really about sort of leadership and commitment, I think, you know, and that comes from the very top, the top of the corporations, top of the local government, and um, even the the institute, the architecture institute, AILA, AILA's, you know, I know that they've got the um, 
the, uh, country uh, strategy, and, and that's where it really needs to be led from the top, and then it will flow through. And uh, I know that you know um, there's always issues around dollars and things like that. But you know, if you if you've committed, if you're fully committed to to true partnership, then you know then there will there will always be able to find the the t the time and the and the money because you know again time you always want to push things along, but um, but uh, one of one of those one of those part of that commitment is understanding that uh, Aboriginal people and communities have different decision making processes that they need to um, uh, are committed to, fully committed to and obliged to undertake. So um, they, they all those understanding those those factors will always uh, you know uh, need to be factored in, and ultimately you know there'll be a better outcome. I find a lot of the time that I'm when I'm working on government projects, a lot of time I'm actually advocating for traditional owner engagement, which I find quite strange because um, it's actually some of government's um, policy to, to engage more. So I find it very, uh, very interesting at times that I'm actually um, advocating for it in early discussions. And um, there's, there is interest there, but a lot of time it's like, well, we don't, do you know how, you know, um, when I was just sort of say, you know, there's, there's opportunity, there's appropriate um, engagement processes we can undertake. And so there's a lot of interest like, okay, so can you, do you know how to do that? Can you propose that? Yes, I can. Um, but we need to understand who we're working with each time. It's it's um, it's very much community specific. So, you know, the the interest is there. Um, there's a project that um, together we're working on with an architecture firm, um, and uh, we're working with. Uh, it was traditional owners were involved. In fact, we again suggested um, it was always in the um, brief, but it was never something as high as a government project. It wasn't very high on their list, and we sort of pushed it a bit further. Um, and they said, yes, let's, let's get it moving. It took a while. Um, there was a change in the traditional owners, there was a change in um, staff there. So it, just, it took a little while. But of course, project timeframe keeps moving. So we had to move along and design. And we kept saying, well, if we're, do if we're doing some of this work, we need to be ready to go back and redo because we're not prepared to go this far um, without having traditional owner engagement. So we undertook a bit of work. We had first meetings with traditional owners. Um, and just started to build a relationship. The first thing for us was to build that relationship before we started talking about the project. We did. Um, and over a couple of sessions, started building a great relationship and talking about the project. And what, what that ended up being from, you know, from unfortunately being a bit of a co-design process, which isn't what we wanted. We really wanted a collaborative process. There were actually really formed a great um, uh, relationship together. And we were able to actually go back, relook at um, even the design principles that were written, rewrite them, relook at them with traditional owner values. So it actually reformed the entire master plan that we had undertaken. And that actually then um, filtered through the whole process. Um, and, you know, the traditional owners are very much, this needs to be a partnership. Um, and so we've made sure that that document read more as a partnership approach and that, that was incorporated in there. And then that's gone back to government um, you know, really indicating what the process is that they want to undertake. And it's actually, it, uh, it is gaining momentum. I wouldn't say it's there yet. I think it's still got a bit of way to go. But through working with the architects and ourselves, we're actually able to change that process. And so that partnership is there so that then I think there's that level of understanding of what actually architects and landscape architects can actually help with navigating that process with government sometimes to make sure that voice that needs to be heard is heard. Yeah, I reckon most projects that I've worked on, if you look at just the project themselves, they probably, 
there was a there was a tension between the timelines and the deliverables and the, the outcomes of the project and how long it was going to take to properly engage with traditional owners because, yeah, once you get into the discussion, you often find that the conversation you need to have is a long conversation and um, while we may have objectives that are sort of, you know, a year away or 18 months away, um, they might not be as meaningful deadlines to traditional owners as they are to the, to the sort of client. So, I think um, I think we have a responsibility as as project managers and landscape architects to push that a bit and to say, look, actually, if we want to do this properly, it's going to take X, and and to get in early and to influence the the brief development so that there's adequate time in there and adequate um, budget and cost as well, because good engagement doesn't come for free. You've got to pay for it. You've got to pay for people's time to come along and to participate in the process. So I think that's a really important aspect as well. So yeah probably just thinking out loud, a really important part is that front end of a project and the brief development to get that right, to enable the good engagement as you get into the project. And the worst example we could give of this is competition processes, um, where probity requirements are in place and you can't undertake any engagement with traditional owners until you have won the project, have done a fully detailed concept design and have costed the project. So you're, you're sort of trying to find, like leave space or if you've worked with those traditional owners before trying to set up protocols for what that engagement might mean or what you think that might be appropriate but it's it's the antithesis of um, functional <laughs> in that sense and uh, that's something that seriously also needs to change if there's going to be a competition process and if it's a project that's in um, should have traditional owner engagement, which in my mind is most of them, but that should, those traditional owners should be engaged in the brief, they should be involved in the panels of who's being selected to actually design that, they should be setting the terms of that kind of project in partnership with whoever the client is. But at the moment, you go through these processes and you're pulling your hair out going, how, how can we, this isn't appropriate in any way, shape or form, yet you still want a good outcome for the community, so you go ahead and then you just run hard the second you get the job and hope that you can um, lean on the relationship that you already have with those traditional owners maybe to create a good outcome. Um, I agree completely. I've worked on several different projects where it was a competition type phase. Um, even us coming into projects that we were, we were approached to do, the terms of reference that we read, none of our community could understand what those terms meant. Um, it didn't speak our language, uh, yet one of the key criterias was us. Um, and then trying to talk about budget and, and having to validate that what we bring is integral to this project. You know, design is design, but what we have, you know, is intellectual property and knowledge um, of a landscape and knowing a sense of place and, and a spirit of place and things like that. Where I come from is a very remote place on the edge of the South Australian border. It's not Melbourne. Um, my landmass of my nation group is probably half the size of Yorta Yorta, where my grandfather comes from. Um, but instead of dealing with eight clan groups of the Yorta Yorta, you're dealing with 60 clan groups of the Gundijmara. Um, you know, different decision-making mechanisms, free prior and informed consent. Um, you, and you know, we, we remind people constantly that, um, yes, we have become the faces and the voices of our communities, um, but we still live in a cultural hierarchy as well, where our elders exist, and we have to go back and, and sort of go through that process as well. We, we're semi the gatekeepers, really. 
um, and you know, trying to break, basically get the documentation and say, well, we're going to have to strip this all the way bare and that's going to take time if you want us at the table legitimately. Um, you know, and, and it has to go beyond just, um, you know, well, we expect an answer by this date. Well, nah, sorry. Um, we have a system in place. Call it governance, call it whatever it is, we've always done it. Um, and the generations that most people are going to be dealing with now are younger generations of Aboriginal people who have different points of view, who probably have more of an appetite for this than, particularly in this field that we're talking about, um, than any that's come before it. Um, but, but trying to, you know, navigate this. I mean, there's 38 language groups. That's just language groups. My group speak five different languages um, within a construct of a nation group. So, you know, trying to understand that before even discussing how to approach and build trust over the years. Uh, my group celebrated being put on the World Heritage List last year, um, the only place in the world purely for its cultural value. Um, but we didn't do it alone. You know, the architect that helped, uh, the, the archaeologist that helped us get it, I met him when I was nine years old. You know, and he kept on coming back, and I'm 39 years old now. Um, so the trust, he could access things that not many could because he actually believed in us and created a true partnership. And he changed his position throughout different places, but he kept on coming back. That's what we believe in. That's what we think consultation and partnership is. It's a journey. Come with us. You know, there's room enough for, in our dreaming for everyone, not just us. That's really interesting when you're talking about, you know, there's the, the different sort of language groups and the number of groups to, to, um, to engage with. And, you know, I think a lot of times, I think uh, just even... On, on a number of projects when we're working, depending on what area you're working in, um, you know, you might have a number of, of traditional owner groups that you need to engage with. Now, some of them are registered Aboriginal parties and some of them are not. Um, and I think it'd be actually be interesting to hear from the panel as well about regards to how we or how uh, we've all been going around engaging with um, those um, that are both registered and not, and what's the process when, you know, the government sort of sets up a process, but actually really it is about inclusion and inviting everyone to be involved. And so, you know, where do we sit with that? I think a lot of us sort of come across that quite a bit. Yeah, it, it, it could be just trickier because there's more, more, to, more people to engage with and poten potentially... You haven't got a one point like a, a board or, or a, a group that can make a decision as to that's a, that's a that's our advice on, on behalf of the traditional owners. You're you're potentially getting multiple different uh, ideas or questions or, or views that maybe don't necessarily align. Um, I've sort of had that experience, or Anne Marie and I've had that experience on a project we worked on down on the peninsula where we're trying to develop a master plan and. Uh, and, and we had really big aspirations for that plan to represent uh, the cultural value, the, the Indigenous cultural values of the site as well as the, the uh, non-Indigenous. And, um, and we pushed for that, but in the end, I don't think the time was right. I don't think the, 
the sort of um, the two communities that were current at that stage vying for rap status were ready to actually um, to, to put their cultural knowledge out there um, and we had to respect that and so the plan we came up with was pared back a bit and it had to talk in more, more generic or general terms about cultural aspirations for that park. Um, but I think that's, some, that's sort of a lesson for me with that project was that you can't force a solution just because you really want it from a design perspective. You have to wait for the right time and you have to have people willingly want to share that knowledge and the stories and the, the understanding with you and the project as well. Um, and the, another example that I've got from, from um, where I work at the moment along the Murray is uh, we're, we've got a really great working relationship with Yorta Yorta and have just released a joint management plan for the Barma Forest, which is an awesome part of the world. And then um, there's a newly, uh, not newly, a couple of years now, appointed rap up in the Mallee, the first peoples of the Milua Mallee. And in between, there's quite a few traditional owner groups and no rap. And, and that's a tricky spot to work because you're engaging with a lot of different people and there's a lot of different, often competing views in there. So that's, a, that's the, the sort of tricky space that um, we're finding, we, we're working at the moment. But it's, but it's great and it's really interesting and it, it teaches you a lot about um, the complexities. I, um, if I could jump in, I think it's, uh, we quite often were working on projects that are on a country that's um, a lot of groups claim ownership to and they all, um, they all care deeply about that connection to that place. And uh, we see our role, at least in that context, as trying to find the commonality between everything that's shared with us. It's very different to working on a project where you've got one traditional owner group and you can, you can lay a cultural knowledge onto a project. But uh, the worst thing we could do is force different cultural narratives on top of each other that are competing and make no one feel comfortable in that space. So you find the most mutual common ground um, that you can, the commonality between those countries. I mean, it's very different to working on a project that's got one traditional owner where you sort of, you can just jump right in and, and see where you can get to. Um, but that's still, it's, I guess it's still important and it sort of goes back to a, con a question I've always had and have been pondering for the last couple of years of, you know, what can you do when you can't engage? And to a certain extent, a lot of what we do on these kind of projects is stuff that we think should be fundamental to architecture, like looking at the, the EVCs and understanding what's been taken from that place and how it can be brought back. We can do all those things without engagement. We just don't have um, any cultural knowledge that comes with it, and we would never claim it to be an Indigenous project or anything of that nature. But there's still fundamental lessons that we've learned over the course of working that um, these things are important, therefore we should be doing them as a fundamental part of our practice. But... Um, Sometimes that tension is really interesting. Sometimes it actually creates really beautiful things and sometimes it's complex. But the one thing that is not our role as professions in our professional roles is to exacerbate tension. So it's always to make sure that we're working in respect of how those communities want to be engaged, engage separately and have their say and never to force, never to force an issue but never to force people into an environment that creates conflict or creates trauma or um, can be disrespectful. But that only comes with understanding those communities and having relationships with them and knowing how they want to work. And quite often, in that context, you end up doing co-design because you're, as we've defined it tonight, because you're, you're sort of trying to find that commonality and proposing things and seeing how it lands and getting feedback rather than the other way around. 
But sometimes, you know, the communities are actually quite happy with co-design. They actually would like to see a recognition there, a cultural recognition of their people, of, of their country, and but they may not have the capacity to do it themselves. So if they've actually got someone who's got the technical design skills to be able to bring that to fruition, they're actually, you know, th there's a greater opportunity than not having it at all. So, you know, co sure, collaboration to me is definitely the way to go, but sometimes actually co-design is appropriate. I've found a, an interesting way into a project like that is to ask the um, traditional owners, um, what stories do you want to tell about this place? And quite often it will lead into design solutions that um, you hadn't anticipated. So I'm thinking we've talked before about um, the design charrette that um, Jock Gilbert ran at RMIT and how um, he brought um, New South Wales um, Darug people down to be part of that charrette. And they had a site which uh, was an orphanage where the Indigenous children were taken from their parents and incarcerated. So the parents weren't allowed to visit the children, but they used to camp on the nearby hillside and they would sing to the children. So um, the Darug people that were part of this design process wanted to tell that story. And the concept proceeded along the lines of we could, um, along the um, waterway that led from the orphanage to the hill, or beside the hill, um, we could develop a, a connection along that line through the revegetation of the site. So um, I think it was a really interesting outcome that nobody had anticipated um, through bringing two groups together with no kind of site analysis or traditional design methods, simply what story do you want to tell about this site? Um, I think you're right. And I agree with that approach. Um, and going back to what Anne-Marie said about trusting in skill sets. Um, back home, you know, we were involved in a lot of different sort of architectural or landscape sort of projects. And some get us really excited. Some were just happy to be in the conversation at all. And if it's a co-design, then we'll treat it as such. We go in with our eyes open. Um, you know, it could be the massive cultural centres where we deal with all the elements and, you know, we have a word called algebra, um, which is the Western concept of culture times a million to us. Um, and if it hits all those nails, then perfect scenario. But then again, you know, we, we own our own lands and assets too, so it could be, you know, items that are like trying to plan for the future and redesigning our cemeteries on our missions because um, we know more of us are going to go there. Um, we definitely leave those in the hands of skilled landscape designers because we are terribly superstitious people, but we're understanding the role that we're having to plan for the future, but trusting that they will come back to us and, and you know, design it in a way that will fit us. Um, so I think that trust goes a long way. Um, I think, you know, getting to, to know the complexities of Aboriginal Victoria... Um, but for the most part, we're pretty similar. You know, we want the same things for our people and our children. Um, but, you know, taking the, the chance, having the courage to go visit a community, 
to, to not just go to a cultural centre, but to speak to the people. Um, you'll get a sense of, you know, the, the complexities amongst us, the differences, but the similarities as well. That could serve you well um, and influence the way you approach things in the future. Um, I've just finished doing a commission for the Victorian Parliament. Um, so the Victorian Parliament's been around for 190 years, um, and only now they've commissioned a piece of artwork that will hang in there. Uh, you know, so we don't think it's the end of anything. We think it's the beginning of a conversation of a brave new world, but it takes courageous people to do it. We're waiting. We've been waiting. You know, Paul and I represent two different generations of an Aboriginal community. You know, my grandparents are all in their late 80s. Um, grandmother was born on a mission. Um, you know, we have been waiting to be included and we do have something to offer. Um, and we don't want to take over. We just want to be a part of it. Um, we feel we can add something. Um, and, you know, in order for us to set a standard going forward, which Anne-Marie and I have spoken about a lot, let's focus on the narrative, not so much the design. If we work out the narrative and then we find that, hey, we're all sort of on the same page here at a base level, then the design reveals itself anyway. Um, and then it's something we can all share Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I think, um, and I'll, I'll talk about it, uh, you know, all the time, and then I've, I've mentioned it already, and it's already been spoken about, and, you know, we're talking about relationships again, I'd, you know, go back to that, but, uh, you know, those relationships will enable you to be able to understand where, where a community is at. It'll be able to give you that perspective on um, what the priorities are whether a community wants to co-design or they want to collaborate, you know, whether the, if, there's, um, if there are issues, then, you know, there's the, the strength of the relationship will stand true and be able to, um, you know, persist through any of those difficult conversations. So, um, yeah, that's... And it sort of speaks about that, um, that longevity and not just the, the in the now and the instant. It's about, you know, even before you need to go and before you need to go and do a project, it's about educating yourself, not, not inflicting um, uh, trauma by um, not having a, a good understanding. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, writing these days around trauma-informed practice and things like that where you can, um, you can understand um, how, how, how you, how you um, maintain a, a good relationship, how you uh, understand the history and the past of, of Aboriginal people and those and and communities and 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 why people say and do the things that they do um, will you know um, really um, give you a good grounding and I'm not sure how how it is these days in in uh, in, in the educational institutions at at uh, at university level but you know um, when I'd spent time there it was you know quite absent from from the what was available to to students, it may have changed these days. I'm not really sure, but uh, you know there is a real um, shift in um, ensuring that uh, that uh, uh, you know, graduates um, are, are entering the workforce uh, with that with that knowledge and that understanding. Um, so yeah, I think that's an interesting idea that yeah, being informed, going into conversations and. I mean, I've had certainly had a sense at times where I've felt like, you know, I'm the 
third or fourth or fifth or hundredth guy that's come in and asked the same question and, and, and like, I got the sense that the person I was talking to was saying, oh, here we go again, I've got to go over this whole thing again for this new guy and then you'll come and you'll leave and then someone else will come. So that sense of transience in, in a design process and people coming and going must be a difficult one. Um, so, yeah, I guess my reflection on that is, yeah, come informed or as informed as you can be so you, you can make the most of that time and, uh, and, that, and that process. I think for us, the way I see it a bit as well, it's, you know, it might be a project, but it's not a project when you work with traditional owners. I see it more of as, a, as building a relationship. It's, it's a journey with traditional owners. Okay, this project will be here for a certain amount of time and that's fine, but actually by building that relationship now, and you know, maybe traditional owners aren't interested in that particular project you're working on or they don't have the capacity at that time, that's not a good time. You know, for us, that project might be at the top of our list, but for traditional owners, I think we need to understand communities, they have so many different areas to cover. There's, there's health, um, there's a whole lot of other elements in the community that for them are the priority and you know, your design project may not be there and that's fine, we just need to understand that. But, if we build on that now, we have that conversation now, it's like, okay, we understand now's not the right, now is not the right time, but who knows, in another year's time, there might be another project, reapproach and continue that journey with traditional owners because that's the, the way that we'll just build on that and just build that relationship. And, you know, constantly going back and just having discussions when it's appropriate or, you know, can sometimes it's more, um, Jill and I have sort of been talking about it's what can you actually do to help the traditional owners themselves as well? It's not just always asking their help on your project either. I think um, I've certainly experienced that where uh, particularly with maybe a traditional own organisation that's forming, maybe they've recently become a RAP or they've recently got their RSA, they're stretched in terms of where they've got limited capacity and limited people to be involved and they just can't be involved in your project. So we've had to think a bit more about well, what are the existing sort of networks or forums or, or meetings that we can participate in so that we can engage that way. So it might not be specifically for your project. So rather than thinking specifically the project and there needs to be an engagement process around that individual project, maybe it's around um, participating in a forum or some other pre-existing uh, way in which you can have those conversations. So we often at Parks Vic will have a, a regular monthly meeting or however frequent and there'll be a round table of issues or ideas that are sort of tabled then so you're not sort of asking uh, people to come to you know hundreds of different meetings on little small projects. And I'm not sure for how many of you here that probably maybe have engaged with traditional owners or haven't and you know sometimes those opportunities don't come up or the project comes up and you think, I've actually never had the opportunity to even speak to a traditional owner, to have a discussion. Um, and I think, you know, something there I just would recommend is, okay, you know, that doesn't always come about, but you're all here attending this event tonight and not that I want to put Tom and Paul and <laughs> Sarah under, under pressure, but, you know, if you haven't had the chance to, to speak to um, traditional owners, it's an opportunity, you know, you just need to take those opportunities because one little discussion today then you have another little discussion next time um, you're speaking with traditional owner and you just sort of slowly start building an a bit of an understanding. And sure, there might be different communities and you need to understand that they're all, um, there's all different uh, variances there, but a slowly building your own understanding a little bit over time um, is much better than waiting for that one project where everything's sort of put in your lap, the traditional owners are there, 
um, projects ready to go, but you haven't actually engaged with traditional owners yet and don't really have an understanding or, um, of, you know, of understanding what's the right and respectful way to engage. I, I think that opportunity can happen by just asking, um, can you help in some way? You know, I'm thinking of the, um, the guidelines we did for AILA for um, supporting cultural ambassadors into AILA to help us with um, setting up our systems and, and um, further changing the culture within landscape architecture. And, um, you know, we were asked to write these guidelines along with the then exist, the only one existing cultural ambassador and um, a couple of us kind of volunteered. And through that and through a lot of Zoom meetings with the cultural ambassador, we were able to achieve what we're quite pleased with. The cultural ambassador's pleased with it as well. The executive are pleased with it. And, um, you know, we've got a wonderful relationship with that person now to the extent that she's asking us, you know, can you help me design safe places for Aboriginal people? So. That was the next kind of challenge that we are facing to help her with that task. And some groups are... I know my group is proactive in this space. So we weren't waiting for groups to come to us anymore because um, we had enough things to do. So we went and actually formed partnerships with RMIT, their School of Design, because um, we have big aspirations like every community does. Um, so, you know, we actually got to the point where trust was built um, and then we trusted these students, you know, now we run archae um, architecture summer schools um, across our landscape. Um, they're helping us with some of our design work in the, the landscape field. Um, we do a lot of tourism, but it's all landscape based. So we're using expertise that we don't necessarily possess, um, but we formalised it. Um, in the hope, uh, well, not a hope, we believe, that's why we did it, we, we don't really hope for much, um, that this will bear fruit and create long-lasting relationships. You know, when them students graduate and they go and do what they did, they'll always remember they came to Gundishmara country and stayed with us for a while, and um, in a way they became part of us. Um, because we I mean, realistic, you know, more buildings and landscape architecture is going to be done in the future. None of us are going anywhere. Um, so we need to learn to not just coexist, but exist together um, to do things better. When, you know, and it goes towards, you know, we have a social responsibility too for the things we're doing. Um, so, you know, it goes towards trying to forge some identity in this country and and I think we're on our way to do it, but we're going to need every single one of us to do it. So um, I think it goes beyond the terms of partnership and collaboration and all those things. I think it's a true just existence together. And then we'll see what we really can do. I'm wondering, I'm just thinking the word outcomes is coming into my head at the moment. Just, uh, you know, it's, perhaps, you know, if maybe some of the experiences that, uh, yeah, the, you know, you guys um, have come across as well, which is around outcomes for the community, not just you know, outcomes for country. You know, we, our traditional owners have, have um, aspirations to heal country because country's been damaged um, by, you know, uh, by uh, European occupation 
Um, so, you know, traditional owners are looking for uh, outcomes, not just for country, um, but for the community, uh, outcomes uh, for uh, education, telling a story, you know, th those types of things are the types of outcomes that uh, often will come out of those conversations. Um, so, you know, there's, there's um, a real opportunity to, to contribute not only to the now, but to the future as well. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested if there's any sort of other types of outcomes that community, um, communities may have, you know, um, highlighted as a priority for them. I mean, there's one uh, example I might give that um, while I was working with uh, Adam at Parks Victoria and together with Nikki McNamara, we are um, working on a project down in Gippsland and um, working with traditional owners. So it was a partnership project in joint management and um, we undertook that uh, so it was an equal say. So that was, um, again, like uh, Adam was saying, the brief was written together with traditional owners. Um, they chose who was going to work on the project together. So there's been an equal say right through. And what um, I think a particular focus of ours on there was um, not only um, what are the benefits of, of working or how can we work closely in true, um, in true partnership collaboration with traditional owners, but also um, how can we um, really try and I think we were sort of thinking about providing um, some of the younger rangers we were working, um, we're going out on site with um, quite a bit and trying to give them more opportunity to to not only, sometimes to some of them to build their confidence, but their understanding. And there was one in particular thought, well, what's every project with, I think about is, what's the benefit to community, not just as the end step, but every step of the process, so every step of the design process, not just the final outcome. And that project, we thought, um, there was one young uh, Indigenous ranger there, and we thought, we sort of spoke to uh, the traditional owners there and said, you know, is, is there an opportunity here to maybe... Um, is there someone interested that might be more interested in the planning process of, of how it is we go around this park planning or the campground planning and to have them sort of working closer with us so we could share, um, we could sort of share our knowledge that we had of our professional knowledge to, to help them um, in, their, in their work down um, in the region. And not only that, what we found out, there was actually so much more we got out of it than that. And, you know, we went out and had uh, held... Um, engagement processes with traditional owners across a number of regional areas because traditional owners weren't all located in one place. They were spread across the, the region. And, you know, seeing this ranger um, come out together with us and um, be able to talk to his community about the projects, what we're working on, and seeing that confidence grow each time we went out with him, you know, just um, it was something we were really... Um, were really um, I think we're just really happy that seeing him grow um, during that process. But also, um, I think what, we, what came out of it wasn't just that. We sort of sat back at the end of the process and just thought, OK, this is a project we've worked on. We work closely with rangers. But what does this mean? And we've sort of gone back and I've sort of just sort of listed, OK, these are the benefits of the project. Great. Project's sort of completed. We've got a great um, design. The design there is fine, but you know, it meets all the criteria after it. It addresses all the issues. But then I actually looked back at, at what we thought the benefits for traditional owners were, and actually they outweighed what the benefits were to just the projects. So not only had we sort of worked and um, had this ranger sort of work with us and, and really sort of flourish during the time we're working with him, but bringing communities um, together, being able to go out and talk to them where that hadn't happened for a while, 
And, you know, it wasn't... Uh, some of those discussions weren't easy, but they really appreciated the fact that we'd made that effort and that things were changing. They could see things were changing. So there was a number of benefits there. So it was, it's all about the process. It's not just there's the final design and it addresses, you know, cultural identity or it includes what you want. I've worked on a... or been part... A small part of a project, which is it's a, it's a big government project to do with the um, uh, the Murray Darling Basin Plan. So there's a, there's a bunch of uh, sort of big infrastructure projects that they're looking to try and establish along the Murray River, sort of between um, I think Gumbau or right up to Lindsay Island in the northwest of Victoria, and uh, it's been run by an organisation. Um, that was established to, to build these projects and their engagement process with traditional owners has been a bit average, if, I, if I've got to say so. And um, Parks Vic was a partner on that project, so a partner with all the other government agencies and we were also partners with the traditional owners working on the project. And so we found ourselves in a really difficult bind there because we could see that the project wasn't engaging properly. It wasn't collaborating, it was trying to consult and it was trying to look just to getting the CHMPs done and the, and the, the, uh, the infrastructure built. Um, so I guess what we did is we just advised um, back through to the Minister's office and, and um, to the project that we thought that proper and genuine engagement was needed here and there's things like cultural flows were actually excluded from the, the intent of this project. So we've We've sort of been working with that project and uh, it's a little bit shaky at the moment, but um, I think Parks Vic as a partner with traditional owners has been able to turn that a little bit. So it's got a way to go, but um, I, feel like, I feel like we've done a part in the bigger picture or big puzzle, which is government, to try and turn that project in a, in a better direction from where it was heading. Um, so that's one sort of idea of a positive I think we've contributed. Another one that I feel really, really lucky to be a part of is, is a, a project called um, Pulgi, which is up in the northwest, which is it's to do with uh, a lot of ancestors up there that, that um, through a range of different previous land uses, grazing and probably a bit of climate change and other things in the mix, um, their resting places had been disturbed and it was quite a significant and broad issue, quite a, a big area of landscape. And so we've worked with, we've established a, an Aboriginal ranger team and they're working with the first peoples of the Miller Mallee to, to look at um, looking after these old people and, and making sure they've got a, a, a sort of um, a resting place that's not going to be disturbed anymore. And so that's a project which is not, it's not a public project, it's probably um, not really spoken about any much more than what I'm speaking about now, um, but it's something that I feel really lucky to be a part of because it's all about giving back to that community and, and looking after their ancestors. So, um, yeah, that's a ripper. It's a lucky project to be involved in. Um, and I think I might just sort of um, finish off our discussion a little bit, but I think, you know, a lot of times um, if we're talking to clients and, you know, there may be an interest um, from that client about engaging, even though that wasn't in the initial brief, um, I'm very much about advocating it on every project and sometimes you hit the mark and sometimes you don't. Sometimes the client's interested and that's great. But then sometimes for whatever reason that falls through this time and that's the way I look at it. I thought, okay, this client isn't ready. 
themselves this time, but we've had that conversation. So next time we work with that client or that government agency, we're actually one step ahead. We'll talk about it, we'll talk about it earlier, and believe that their appetite is a little bit warmer for it. You know, it might take two or three goes sometimes, but I think if we continually do that, you know, in two or three projects' time, for those clients that maybe have been reluctant for whatever reason, if we can engage all of those, that's so many more projects that we can engage with traditional owners on the projects and really have this process. So, um, so Anne-Marie, yeah. would a subtle way of doing that be every time you go out on country to do an acknowledgement of country in front of the client and um, just, you know, go from there? It's like, it's reminding them continually. Um, I mean, I, I do, it, it also depends on the project, I think, and the client and where you're on, but a lot of times, um, um, yeah, we, I'll try and um, suggest that, and sometimes it has taken off, and that I, think, I think by having the client bring them out on country on site, yeah. owners as well, um, is a big way of actually having them quite quickly understand. Yeah. Or just leverage the design agency that you have and subversively put things in the project without telling the client what it means. <laughs> That's the fun part. Um, great. So we might just... Um, we've sort of got 15 minutes. Is that right? 15 minutes. So um, if there's any questions for anyone, any of the panel members, if anyone has any questions at all on anything we've spoken about or, or beyond... Um, thanks, everyone. Um, excellent conversation. Um, the, um, just I was thinking, drawing a few threads here, but um, about CHMPs and um, and Sarah was talking about the sort of lack of obligation um, to engage, and that you know the CHMP is way too late. Um, you know, I I don't understand how we can be um, doing site analysis or you know, finding out anything about place, like place is meaningless without the story of the first peoples of that place. Um, and, um, but I suppose, and also uh, sort of a question that Adam asked earlier about what, um, uh, what sort of opportunities does engaging uh, with traditional owners and Aboriginal people um, bring to the project? And I think there's a synergy between um, landscape architects in particular and their understanding of place and, and, um, and traditional owner uh, understanding of place, but on the, yeah, um, but traditional owners have um, uh, sort of cultural ways of knowing, being and doing and, and can you think of any um, examples of um, in projects where um, that knowledge or understanding or perspective has um, uh, changed the project, either in, a, in terms of um, form or function or material sort of outcomes? Um, the spiritual home of where my answers come from at Lake Condo um, obviously was a lake, <laughs> but it was drained by pastoralists um, 200 years ago. Um, and it was something that, you know, goes back generations of my people trying to reflood this landscape. 
naturally we had to develop, um, went through the legislative process of a CHMP and, you know, that's a function that we have to follow or else we'll lose our status. Um, but we felt that it was only ticking a box that didn't satisfy us um, in terms of that place in particular. So the idea was to, you know, use engineering, um, engin engineering firms and other groups to sort of develop this fish race and this big channel that would, you know, divert water back into this massive wetland system. Um, and that's all the CHMP sort of spoke about. And we were told, you know, I'll, everyone knows about Lake Honda because everyone does. And we said, well, not really because you're missing X, Y and Z and every other letter in the alphabet amongst this place. Um, and then we started asking questions, or we directed the, the archaeologists to go start talking to key elders, not just an elder, but handpicking the people that knew this place better than anyone else. Um, $200,000 later, uh, the plan decided to build the channel where our elders said to build it in the first place. <laughs> so there was a bit of egg on you know, people's faces and things like that because you know, it was like we were following a legislative system, which we always did. We understand our obligations under the Act. Um, but we said we have to go beyond that. So then we started posing more questions. Well, what happens in the next site and the next site? So we just started developing our own system of knowledge, our own ecological knowledge and database system that, that we could access. And because we felt the shortcomings, no one's fault, through no one's fault, there were shortcomings in knowledge through the Aboriginal Victoria system. And um, we said, we don't want something to happen where our sites are destroyed because everyone's trying to do the right thing, but we don't know whether we're coming or going or, or seeing heads or tails of things. Um, and we had to trust each other's knowledge of this place, but in a way that, um, on our terms, basically. <laughs> um, we said, um, because this isn't just as simple as building something and following the Act. This is at the very heart of a place that belonged here long before the Act was written, or the very thought of this state was thought about. Um, so, so we started delving deeper. What does it actually mean? What does a spirit of a place actually mean? We have an obligation to do it. We wanted to do it. Um, but trust our knowledge for once, um, which proved to be right in the end. There was a, um, a project as well that um, Working traditional Owners on that um, there was... Um, a number of sites and working uh, with, with the traditional owners and just understanding the connection they have to place and it's both the tangible and the intangible. So we need to understand, you know, what we're seeing, the landscape we're reading, but the landscape beyond that that we can't read, that, they ha that there is that cultural connection, that, that other layer of understanding and the connection they have and, you know, that certainly influence, influences a project and I think a lot of times that isn't really... Um, that isn't, un I think it is recognised once it's understood, but a lot of people maybe aren't aware of that intangible understanding and, and it's not necessary for us to know what that is, but for us to um, know that we need to listen to traditional owners um, when, um, when we're to sort of stay away from place or not or, or that connection, we just need to understand that there's that other layering for us that is just not appropriate for us to know about, but that does certainly or can inform or... Uh, influence the project. 
The only one I can think of, Nikki, is the one you worked on with me, which is the um, shipwreck master plan where we're looking at the blowhole uh, down on the shipwreck coast. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. But we were sort of looking for how to design the, um, the infrastructure, the, the sort of viewing platforms, I guess, around that. And it was only through the engagement with Eastern Mar. I know you've probably got a better memory of this than me, but I think they said that the, the blowhole represented um, blowhole in a whale, the whale's sort of spout, whatever you call it. And so while we originally had plans to put these beautiful structures over the top and, and sort of get a really good viewed angle down into the blowhole, um, they thought that that would be obstructing the whale's breathing and not a good idea. So we sort of ended up pairing back the... I think that's right. Is that how you remember it? Yep. <laughs> so we had a really meaningful outcome that helped to inform the design and then change that around um, from us. Yeah, and, and a really um, beautiful and meaningful design outcome as well. So it's thinking about um, cultural heritage not as a problem that we need to manage, um, but uh, as, as a way of exploring um, spirit of place and connection to place from the get-go, from the beginning. Sometimes what's already there is already perfect. It doesn't need changing. I would say I fundamentally agree with you on the cultural heritage management plan front. They come way too late um, and there's no actual engagement between the cultural heritage advisor in terms of what's in that report until you come to a, the planning stage. And they're usually so rich with information and have gone through processes with traditional owners and then you get that and you're like, why, why is that not informing the design itself? And which is a fundamental issue. Um, but then also acknowledging that sort of the cultural heritage management plan process exists to protect cultural material that may may be existing within these sites but most of the time what we've been talking about is engagement for the future um, and those two things still don't connect and they should fundamentally connect um, it yeah I mean the process needs to change but that there needs to you can't operate in silos and these things often we're engaging with traditional owners but then they're being engaged for the cultural heritage management plan and there's no connection whatsoever I think recognition and settlement agreements sort of move into this space a bit. So rather than looking at the cultural heritage management plans, which come sort of really too late, um, and I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but my understanding is that you've got processes such as land use activity agreements that mean that you have to engage up front on an activity before you actually start planning for it. So you're you're working out how to partner or what the aspirations are and then building them in from that early stage. So maybe that's the way to go, more RSAs. Yeah, well, RSAs are a legal agreement. So, um, yeah, they're obligations and uh, that uh, traditional owners must be consulted from the very outset. So more RSAs. <laughs> I'll just... I'll, it's not really much of a, a sort of a story, but... Um, just a, a quick story, which I mean, I'm not practicing LA, I'm not qualified LA or anything, but that as far as a, a design uh, process that I was involved in, I spent a little bit of time um, just doing some consulting at one point in time, and um, I was brought into the consortium that won the Metro tunnel bid, and um, and they had a design charrette. And um, so they had all these different uh, internationals come in, teams come in and do their bit of a spiel. And I came in and told the story of the filling of the Port Phillip Bay from a, 
uh, the story that was told by to me um, from a Bunwarang elder, and uh, talks about uh, a traditional story about that um, how the, the bay filled, um, and those those stories have been passed on through generations, and um, and it's about that so that that deep deep connection to to the place uh, and the um, the stories that have been passed on through the generation, which um, when I told that story and talked about the connections that uh, people have um, to this land and the opportunity to tell that story through through that project um, about the, the stories of people coming from, from many places, um, it just sort of, you know, floored them. And ultimately, um, that's what uh, informed part of um, that design. So. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing what um, that connection and those stories um, can do to um, you know, uh, bring bring life to um, that strong and ongoing connection that um, that traditionalists have to to a place. I was just thinking about our festival spaces and how we traditionally sit in rows in front of speakers and how at the first um, Brisbane Festival, I think it was, we had our cultural ambassador there for the first time to do a welcome to country ceremony, basically. But in the lunch recess, she was able to get a yarning circle happening. So she totally changed the way the space was being um, used in that festival. And so it's something that can happen, you know, really quickly and informally. Um, if you allow that person into the, uh, uh, you know, the agenda to actually um, do it, so, yeah. It can change the conversation yeah. where that goes. That's right, it did from a very much a presentation point of view to a totally inclusive yeah. way. And all it was was the arrangement yeah. of the way people were sitting. So sometimes it's just a little subtle um, deviation or that subtle change makes an enormous difference. Is there any last question? No? All silence? Great. <laughs> okay. Well, I might just, um, we might just um, finish it there and look, you know, I think if anyone wants to come up and just speak to us individually briefly, we're sort of happy to answer sort of any questions. But I'd just like um, to thank very much also, particularly um, Tom Day, Paul Payton and Sarah as well, and Adam Nitschke and Jill um, in joining me together in this conversation tonight and um, hopefully you got something out of it. Thank you. Thank you everyone for being here. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.